Welcome to It's Lit, where all things literary live at the root. I'm Danielle Belton, the Roots Editor-in-Chief, here with the Managing Editor of The Glow Up, Maisha Cut. Well, hello. <laughs> Maisha, today we're talking with someone who I've been a fan of for years. Journalist <laughs> Charles and Blow. I know, he's amazing. <laughs> Charles has been an op-ed journalist for the New York Times since 2008, where he regularly writes about politics and social justice. For that, Charles worked as the paper's design director and was also briefly the art director for National Geographic. What a multi-talented person. I mean, my gosh. <laughs> In <laughs> <No> 2014... <big> <laughs> Exactly. In 2014, he published his best-selling memoir, Fire Shut Up in My Bones, which won a Lambda Literary Award and was long listed for the Penn Open Book Award. Now he has a new book out called The Devil You Know, A Black Power Manifesto, and we're so excited to talk to him about it. I mean, manifesto indeed. I mean, no one can ever accuse Charles Blow of not being passionate about whatever he's talking about, right? (laughs) You know, but this book, he makes such a convincing argument for, I think, something that a lot of us are really resistant to, which is kind of considering this reverse migration uh, as as a point of power. I mean, what what do you think of that? Are you you ready to uproot yourself from Harlem and, and take it on down south? You know, like I've I've uprooted myself so many times. I have lived in Texas. I've lived in California. I've lived in Washington, D.C. And now I live in New York. I'm not ready for another move right now. But when I retire, I'm totally down. I mean, he makes a good case. He does. He makes a very good case. (laughs) He does, definitely. And so I think we should share this great case that he has to make with our listeners right now. So should we just dive in? We absolutely should. Hey, Charles. Hello, how are you? I am excellent. Welcome to It's Lit. It's Lit. Yes. <laughs> I need we're to get all... more lit. I know. I feel, I feel like all... I'm not lit enough. <laughs> I'm just a flicker right now. Oh, we will get you lit by the end of this I don't know. conversation. I think this book is pretty lit. <laughs> the book is on fire. It is literally burning down. <laughs> Wait, there were so many tabs in that book. Like, there was, like, so many little... I had lots of questions and notes. I did. I was, I was, I was you know... <laughs> we're going deep. We're going deep. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so Charles, it's so great to have you with us today. We love to Oh, thank you. We love having fellow journalists on the show and are really intrigued by your latest book. Oh, that's good. <laughs> but first, we have a little ritual that we okay. do on every It's Lit episode since It's Lit is a podcast about black books and authors and writers and journalists. We begin every episode by asking our guests to name at least one book they've considered to be, you know, mind-blowing, life-changing, life-affirming, like it changed your whole perception of what a book could be. What was uh, that, that book? That is such a hard question. <laughs> That's why like, I people have like a, like a million books. It's like, <laughs> how do you, what does that even mean? That question is so deceptive. Okay, let's you see. You almost have to go back in time and remember like the first book that yeah, blew your like, mind. Yeah, because there's like different ones that did different things. Yeah. All right. So I'm gonna just gonna say, I you know, let me just stay place safe. I'm gonna say, "Beloved" by Toni Morrison. Ah. It is. It is exquisitely rendered in every 
line, every paragraph is just like something extraordinary, beautiful. And you realize that this is a genius when you're reading it. It makes absolutely no sense whatsoever. You have to go back and read it a zillion times to know who's alive, who's dead, like what is happening. It makes no, like it can't, like I, I think I read it like three times. Like it makes no sense, but it's like, I can imagine how the editors were like, oh my God, this is a genius. I'm scared to tell her. Like, they think this is silly. It's art. It's art. <laughs> it, it is, is totally definitely art. art. I mean, like, even though you may be lost, you also don't want to question this genius who is doing this because how can a brain do this? Exactly. That is like literally the best like synopsis of Beloved I've ever heard. But that was dead on. <laughs> it is words as art. Yes. <laughs> Abstract art. Mm-hmm. It's open to interpretation. Exactly. All exactly. that stuff. It's amazing. You are deeply affected when you leave it, though. Yeah, it is. Absolutely. Yes. Profoundly so. <laughs> so, Charles, you just released your second book. Yes. The Black Power Manifesto, The Devil You Know, which came out on yes. January 26th. Yes. Last Tuesday. Yes. Mm-hmm. In 2021 days, seems like, what, six months ago? I'm like, what year was that? I don't know. I don't know what is happening. <laughs> but your book, it immediately became a Barnes & Noble bestseller. That's good. It's amazing. So this is a really interesting book for many reasons. In fact, we've heard that you really had no intention of writing a so-called quote-unquote race book. But that's exactly what the devil you know is. Part manifesto, part history on race in America, a part persuasive essay as you make an unexpected and pretty compelling argument for reverse migration of Black people to the South. Why this book right now? Well, as you know, the way you write books is never right now. So it's like three (laughs) years ago that you have the idea and, you know, it just happens to come out in the moment and you hope and pray that the moment that it comes out, it is relevant then the way you thought of it three years ago or longer than that. Um, people have asked me, what was the moment that you, that it rang to you that this was the idea? And I was really struggling because I didn't think of it that way. Cause I just remember one night thinking, Oh, this is a good idea. And I just started writing thoughts and it became a book proposal and i wrote for like three or four days you know like four or five days very little sleep very little food i just kept writing because it was in my head and you know once you get into your head you have to get it out otherwise it'll be lost and 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 i know i was pulling from things that i always had already written in columns and things uh things that i come across in my journalism and it kept feeling like oh my god you've been working on this book this whole time and you didn't know it because you have all these things that tie into this thesis. But it does occur to me that that somehow before that, or maybe and it was in that moment, that this book about young white hippies migrating to Vermont with the express purpose of, of changing the politics of that state was in my mind. And, and it, it was like fascinating to me that they had done this, that they had... You know, it was a germ of an idea by two Yale college students. They published this tiny little article in the Yale Law Review. Uh, A more famous author picked up that idea, published a big article in Playboy. And yes, people, people did used to read Playboy for the articles. That's true. (laughs) It was actually a a literary venue. Uh, And he had written this thing that said, take over Vermont. And on his urging, 
tens of thousands of young hippies, white people, packed their things and moved to Vermont. And they didn't even have things, places to stay, many of them. They slept in the fields. They made communes. But they changed Vermont from one of the most conservative states in the Union to one of the most liberal. In fact, in 2008, it, Vermont was the state in which Barack Obama won his largest percentage of the white folk. And I was fascinated by this. And, and it occurred to me that, you know, not that reverse migration was a new thing, it's a very old concept, but that thinking of it not as black nationalism, which is kind of separating us or having the United States carve out a piece of the country and give it to us or somehow have an armed rebellion, but thinking of it as using the constitutional tools available to you, breaking no laws, having no armed insurrection, just using the tools and your feet, you could seize power. And that was the, that, that was the term. Yeah. I mean, you know, and, and it's interesting because it does kind of put a spin on that whole, you know, the master's tools and the master's house kind of rhetoric that we've heard for so long. Um, and, and as you saw, you know, my, for our, for our listeners, my copy of The Devil You Know is deeply tabbed. Like I have all these tabs <laughs> throughout this book. I'm already recommending she it to people. She ran out of tabs. I, she, she, I, I she went, barely I went, like raised in. it into the frame. I could see like, it's like <laughs> and there were like a zillion tabs. It was like, it was like the fringes on Miss Shug's gown. There were you so know, many tabs. <laughs> I, I, I like to do a deep read. I like to take notes. I approach all of this academically. And you know, okay, so, but on a non-academic note, you know, fun fact, you and I used to be neighbors in, in Brooklyn, right? And we've both since made our primary residences elsewhere. Uh, You returned south. You established a residence in Atlanta. I returned to my hometown of Chicago. Uh, In fact, I live in my childhood neighborhood of Hyde Park where you opened this book. So that was really striking to me. Um, And Chicago also features heavily here as one of a handful of destination cities. I mean, obviously it was in, in the Great Migration that those of us who are descendants would be ostensibly leaving. And I guess because I know Chicago to have a really insular and even clannish Black community, I was a little curious and maybe even a little sensitive <laughs> about the character- <laughs> the characterization of, of destination cities as less hospitable than this more romantic version of the South. So, you know, for those who have not read your book yet, can you explain why you feel the South might be a more welcoming place for us as opposed to Southerners looking at us like, why are you here, Yankee? <laughs> right. So, so what, one thing that I want to make very clear to your listeners is that it is, you know, it's not a seesaw, you know, this one is high and that one's low, but rather I'm making the case that racism is everywhere in America. And any, anyone who's kind of laboring under the delusion that, okay, my place is so much better because it's not as racist as that place. Actually, that's kind of a fallacy. And I was trying to dismiss that fallacy and have us start talking about Listen, this is everywhere and it, and it expresses in different places in different ways and some places more detrimental to you than other, other places and, and laid those arguments out. Uh, the destination cities are generally larger cities. The South, the, the big cities in the South are still small places. The city of Atlanta proper is only 400,000 people. There are 8 million people in the suburbs around Atlanta. But the footprint of the city is relatively small. And that is a huge contrast to places like New York, where there's two million black people alone. You know, like, so they're smaller cities. So 
people who are used to a certain amount of urbanity in destination cities will cling to that and say, you know, I don't want to leave that. But what even in those instances, I try, I use New York as an example that, you know, you look out at that skyline, that's not a, you can hardly find a thing that was built by Black people, financed by Black people, is a Black institution, is a Black engine of economic prosperity, nothing. And in fact, what you see, if you know the history of New York, is how Black people were literally chased up that island by hostility. And they that's how they landed in Harlem. And so what I try to get people to do is reorient their understanding of where they are. Is this place valuing who you are, what community you come from, and making that central to the identity of the place and the city and its politics and its power? Or are you an add-on? Are you the spice? You know, are you the play? Are you the community where they can go and listen to some hip hop and then receive to their suburban space or to their enclavish? Uh, they're, yeah, they're uh, suburban, you know, whatever, whatever, yeah, whatever. <laughs> or, or, you know, because sometimes, you know, people think of diversity. I'm speaking specifically of white America here as can I go run out and get a beef patty and, and get a fried chicken and a taco <laughs> and, a, and a spring roll? You know what I mean? And then I can come back. So that's that's their concept of it, that you are the additive extra spiciness, mm-hmm. but that they don't have to live around you. You know, you, since you live in Chicago, one of the researchers that I quote in the book is a woman who does sociological research around Cook County. And she looks, I, I've used her research because it was fascinating to me how she chose to do it. It was real estate. And so you say whatever you want to say about how you, about you value diversity and other different people who don't look like you. Where do you buy your house? It's the biggest purchase you will ever make in your life. When it comes time for you to put your money where your mouth is, literally, where do you buy? And what she found was that white people were, they would say they wanted diversity and they would always buy in places where they were the majority. Right. Which, I mean, I think, you know, it's, it's funny because I, I can both call Chicago in its soul a very black city, but also say it's extremely segregated. Always has been. I worked on a sociological study here when I was still in college that Harvard was doing, and it was all about the segregation in Chicago neighborhoods. So I, I will not argue that point, but I do have a case study that I'm curious about. Go for it. You know, in my case, you know, my great-grandparents left Mississippi um, mm-hmm. and they settled on Chicago's South Side, where obviously I still live. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I, I've definitely had curiosity about what their life in their home state is like. And, and you know, I, I would say I've even fallen prey to that kind of romanticizing of the South. I, I call it the HGTVing of the Confederacy because I think, there are more Black people watching that than, <laughs> than they give us credit for. But, you know, in the case of Mississippi, we're also talking about a state which up until a few months ago had the Confederate iconography on its flag and, you know, is currently debating a bill to penalize any school teaching the 1619 project. And, mm-hmm. you know, understanding that your goal, I mean, the the goal that you are restating here, because as you right. said, this has been a long argument, um, maybe perhaps not as eloquently stated as you have done here. But that the goal here is to be able to influence state legislatures and local government to the point that these types of issues become non-issues. You know, in the meantime, how do you realistically incentivize young people and young families, you know, who would ostensibly make up this base to move to places that have such a clear and stated disdain and disregard? And I understand, yes, that doesn't mean it doesn't exist here in Chicago or New York or anywhere else. Absolutely. But just this like kind of blatant dis- 
disdain for Blackness, and it's so deeply and and proudly embedded in their culture and policies. Okay, so, but I would, I would, so you wound, wound the tape back to probably a, you know, very recent case of the flag, probably a more recent kind of uh, era around civil rights. Let me rewind the tape back even further, maybe 130, 140 years. Mississippi is the Black power center of America. It is wealthy. It is because of cotton crop. It is where Black people have one of the highest percentages of Black people in the country. So when the enslaved people are freed, they are the majority of the population of Mississippi. People, intellectuals, Black intellectuals move from the North to Mississippi because it is where the power is. It is where, it is where things are going to thrive. In one of the first elections after the, the 15th Amendment was ratified and Black people were given the right to vote, the Black voting population of Mississippi far outnumbers the white voting population of Mississippi. They sent an enormous delegation of Black legislatures to the state legislatures. Those legislatures pull aside their white counterparts and say, listen, we have two seats when we rejoin the union. One of those has to be a Black person. And because they have so much power, they say, of course, well, now they gave him the shorter term of those, but they did send a black guy. And in fact, Mississippi produces our first two black senators ever. The only reason that Mississippi is not today the thriving center of black intellectualism and wealth and power is because terrorists ran black people out of that state. And what we as black people have to come to terms with is to answer this question. Will the terrorists won that round? Morally, can we allow that victory to stand? We don't have to. We don't have to. But we keep saying, oh, it's scary. It's the boo-hoo. The, the horrible people are down there. So that means you are not in the fight. That means you're not... Because what I'm suggesting is a revolutionary act. No revolutionary act is without risk, and it's not without resistance. And w- I, either we can... You know, march every time someone gets shot by the police, but have no real change in policies or any of the architecture that put those police officers in contact with those young black and brown men and women in the first place. Or we can say, no, 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 we're about to change this whole thing. Right. And it's a choice we make. And so we can make the choice. And I, I don't begrudge anyone who makes the choice that they don't want to be they don't want to be on the vanguard of that fight. But it is a choice you are making, because what I am pointing out for you is that there is a path to power. It is your choice whether or not you want to take it or not. BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022. Investments like acquiring America's largest biogas producer, Arkea Energy, and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. So this 
all extremely fascinating. I have to admit that a it lot is. of it resonated with me quite a bit. Um, I'm from St. Louis, Missouri, which is like someone put the South in the middle of the Midwest. <laughs> and <laughs> so then like, some, of it, some of it over here. Someone just plucked a little bit of Mississippi and just put it right in Missouri. How did Mississippi get there? Oh, on the no. train. Yes, it took the train. <laughs> I was like, on the train. <laughs> on the train. <laughs> on the Chicken Boat Express. Exactly, exactly. You know? And unlike um, Maisha, like, you know, obviously loves Chicago. I have yes. a much more complicated relationship <laughs> with my hometown of St. Louis, Missouri. Let's not get crazy now. <laughs> <laughs> Where there are a lot of African Americans, but we don't have the same type of power. Like, for instance, it's a majority Black city. There's only been two Black mayors in the history of St. Louis. But my family, you know, also hails from the South. And in this case, you know, my parents, who were from Texas and Arkansas, you know, who left, while they, you know, love their communities, love their families, much like me not being too nostalgic about St. Louis, they were not nostalgic <laughs> about their hometowns either. Yes. Um, so... As African-Americans, we know that our legacy here in America, you know, we know how our ancestors were brought here and forced to work in the South for generations, then freed into that same land with an unfulfilled promise of even the most basic resources. Yes. You're making a really strong argument here. But given the totality of our history, what do you say to people who don't identify with the South as a homeland for Black people or strongly feel the opposite? Well, I, I say... Uh, you know, I understand your feelings, number one. I, I don't want to discount how people feel about... I mean, moving is not, you know, this is not like some, like, whimsical thing that you're going to do. You know, it, to leave a community, to leave a f uh, family, these are the same decisions that people made when they first migrated. They had no idea what Chicago even was. Many of them have never seen snow. You know, they've never seen sidewalks. So I understand that, that it is a monumental decision when a person decides to move to a place that they are not familiar with. So I want to make sure I don't, don't discount that in any way. But I do say, take into account all the things that you think are positive about where you live. Now, let me tell you some of the things that I think are positive about the South. When Forbes looks at places where the Black middle class is thriving, half of the cities on that list are Southern cities. When people look at where... Black-owned businesses are most concentrated. The Southeast is the place where they are more concentrated. When they look at where uh, median family incomes have risen most, with all the adjustments involved in that, the South ranks incredibly well. Uh, when this MIT professor looked at, you know, what real income gains have been made over the last 30 years, even among people who were did not have a college degree, the South performed incredibly incredibly well. The idea that you can't live comfortably here is a misnomer. Like, in fact, probably more comfortably because your money just goes so much further, right? Then there is the cultural side of it. You know, only 10% of Black people lived outside the South before the Great Migration. For the vast majority of people who live in those cities now, maybe your grandparent is buried in a grave in Chicago or New York or, or Los Angeles. Maybe if they were part of the first wave. Our roots are just not as deep there. For 400 years that we have been on this soil, the majority of Black people lived in the South. And that has created in that space many, or if not most, of our longest cultural institutions, be they churches or historically Black colleges or, or, 
social service organizations, they exist there. There's a primacy to your culture there. You may not have been privy to it, but once you go to a New Orleans or you come to an Atlanta, you realize like you're not the extra people. Like you are it. Like this is your food. This is music that people like you created. And, and being in space where your culture has a primacy is a beautiful feeling. And then there is the political side of it. Not just the power that I believe that we will gain if we take over states, but right now, there are 1,200 majority Black cities in America. 90% of them are in the South. Maynard Jackson became the first mayor of a major Southern city in 1973. That was because in 1970 was the first time Atlanta became a majority Black city. Since then, if you go fast forward to now, almost every major city in the South has a Black mayor. And these are young Black mayors. These are dynamic young people. You have the opportunity to, to go around and talk to these young... I mean, there are many of them under 40. They're just dynamic young people in control of the decisions about Black bodies and Black lives. I lived in New York for 26 years. Not any time during that period did I have a Black mayor. The only Black mayor New York City had was David Dickens 30 years ago before I arrived. How is that possible? You know, and, and so I believe... All of those factors are very compelling factors for move. Weigh those. I'd say to your listeners, weigh those against your reasons for staying. And then weigh the possibility that you would be able to possibly control a state government. There's a reason that the United States is called the United States of America, because half of the power in this country is reserved for the states. The, the Constitution makes very clear. Any power not specifically assigned to the federal government is reserved for the states. Much of what you march about, care about, complain about, is largely a state issue. Mass incarceration, largely a state issue. The criminal justice system, largely a state issue. Health policy, educational policy, on and on and down the line. I am not suggesting to people that if you move south, you're going to, and if you, even if you create a black majority in a state, that you are moving into a utopia. If black majorities who have control of state power created racial utopias, then every white person in America would be prospering because for the last 90 years, every state except Hawaii has been majority white. Right now, as we speak, seven American states are 90 plus percent white. Surely all those people, white people are prospering, right? No, they are not. <laughs> they still have crime. They still have income inequality. They still have poverty. They still have struggle. What I am saying, though, is that in the aggregate, people who do not have to suffer under white supremacy will do better than those who do. And so some of me says, this is an individual decision that each person has to make. The other side of me, though, says, this is a community mission. It is not about Charles Blow and whether or not he was comfortable in New York and Brooklyn. Part of this is that I'm going to be fine. And by moving, I will help my whole community to be better. Well, I think that's a communal responsibility that, you know, we, we do often lose touch with. And if there's one thing that we can say, I would say, I, you know, I personally believe about the last 
few years. I don't know that we can call them bright spots, but as we've got, as you know, we've seen the rise of Black Lives Matter and kind of a more galvanized, unified voice around that, that there, you know, that community responsibility is a, is a real discussion to have. And, you know, that actually brings me to my next question, which, you know, when we, uh, when we launched number 833. That's right. (laughs) Um, You know, we, we just launched this podcast last fall. And uh, since that time, it's been really striking, like how many writers that we've spoken to who, you know, had written books the year before. I know you were saying that this was a three-year process for you, but a lot of these people had written and even published their books prior to everything that happened with the pandemic and then George Floyd and Breonna Taylor and the protests and the uprisings. And a lot of them found themselves in these like recommended reading lists about racial justice and, you know, talked about how bittersweet that was. And you are perhaps the first we have spoken to who not only incorporated and was writing during, it seems, the the events of 2020, but in response to some of those events. Uh, So how did that inform your thesis? And given the way, for instance, that Georgia flipped, I'm I'm assuming since this book went to press, and then the insurrection at the Capitol, um, is there any epilogue that you would add now? Is there anything else you would say? Well, actually, most of it was able to be incorporated. The only thing that was not, that I didn't know when we had to lock it up, really lock it up, Mm-hmm. was the outcome of the runoff. Mm-hmm. Right. But the, it had already flipped. And and what I kept seeing was not a challenge to the thesis, but validation of the thesis or proof of how this could work. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, w- w- I, I was just freaked out when Georgia flipped because, you know, I knew the, I knew the data there. I didn't expect it when I moved to Atlanta. I didn't expect this to be the year I'd uh, wasn't pegging the thesis to the book to that in any way, but the population, the black population of Georgia doubles from 1990 to 2020, largely because of reverse migration. Mm-hmm. That's true. You know, uh, and, you know, two things were happening here. The amazing organizing by a whole host of people, most, you know, notably Stacey Abrams, who's a superwoman in the story. And on the other hand, they just had more black bodies to organize. You know, black and, and 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 what was profound about this in relation to my theory was black control of it. Not just you helped, but you were the majority of the coalition that flipped the state. Not you know, I don't know what happened in, in during Reconstruction because there were no exit polls clearly. But <laughs> so I will always say, at least since Reconstruction, this is the first time that black people were the majority of a coalition to deliver a state to a presidential candidate of any party. That's what power looks like. That's what power looks like. No, totally, totally. I, I kind of want to go back and talk about culture a little bit. Sure. Um, since, as you know, there's distinct cultural difference between Northern Blacks and Southern Blacks. Like, I mean, Absolutely. I see it in my own family, you know, with mm-hmm. me being from St. Louis and how different my life was from my cousins who were raised in Arkansas. So you loosely characterize it as progressive and passionate versus patient and pragmatic. For some people, the call to, quote, go back to where we came from, end quote, might feel the same as when racists tell us to go back to Africa, a place where we are more tourists and appropriators than rightful residents. We know how gentrification has affected a lot of formerly predominantly Black enclaves across the United States, but we know Black people can be gentrifiers too. Like, for example, 
I moved to Washington, D.C. in 2009. And there was palpable tension between those who were from D.C., born, raised there, generations of family dating back to building the literal city as slaves, you know. And then people like me, who were just like a bunch of like fancy pants nerds that just wanted to go to parties at the White House. So (laughs) there was a lot of tension there. And I was seen as a gentrifier living in Northeast Capitol Hill. You discuss how the economic opportunities for Blacks are stronger in Southern states, and we should note are largely advocating for us to migrate to larger cities. But how do you account for how we might put a strain on resources or even negatively influence the culture of these well-established enclaves? Well, I don't, I don't think a reunion of Black people and their divergent factions could ever be a negative, right? So it would, can it can you know it, it is a lot if a lot more people are in Atlanta, will traffic be slower? Probably. <laughs> you know? So yes, that's that's your. In fact, you know the common refrain in Atlanta when people say I'm moving, they say we're full. You know, they, that's, that's what they always say. We're full. Exactly. Don't come here. We're full. So, uh, uh, but. I discussed this concept in the book that, you know, having lived half my life in the South and the other half in uh, in destination cities, that uh, differentiation that you described was very clear to me that there was, you know, there was two Black Americas, the sons and daughters of the Great Migration and the sons and daughters of the people who stayed in the South, and they were kind of different culturally. But they were also, to me, complementary, that a lot of what I saw as stressors on northern and western cities, I thought some of the answer to that was that southern sensibility could offer. And a lot of what was ailing southern cities, a lot of the the kind of activist uh, radicalism of northern and western black populations could actually infuse that with new energy. In my mind, reuniting these two factions, drawing on the best of both, is actually a curative action rather than uh, a detrimental action. So, you know, <laughs> I'm going to I'm going to ask this question just because, I mean, there is a lot to unpack here. And I got to say, you got me really thinking about it. Um, and, you know, we ask these questions, not necessarily to challenge, but I guess also to kind of like clarify, because, you know, I'm also thinking of what we just saw, you know, I, because I live in the Midwest and I live in mm-hmm. a, you know, very historically blue state, although there's Chicago and then there's the rest of Illinois. So yes. let's make yes, that very definitely. clear. Let's make that very clear. <laughs> um, I, I went to but, school in downstate Illinois. Listen, hotbed of the clan. <laughs> it's, it's, a, it's a whole, it's a different world, as they say. But we also know that like one in three black voters lives in what we know to be a battleground state. You know, the, these include these non-Southern states like Wisconsin, Michigan, Ohio, which is on the border, <laughs> and Pennsylvania, you know, in Iowa. And and do you feel it's worth the trade-off to abandon those states? Like, I look at how tight, you know, Michigan and Wisconsin were, and I'm like, oof. <laughs> you know, do we want to pull out? Do we want to divest from there? Well, one thing that, one uh, argument that I make around this point is to always make sure that people know that when I say Black power, I'm not talking about political party power. I am not trying to say Black power for Democrats. I'm saying Black power for Black people. And when you are, you exist as a 15% of the population of Illinois or, 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 or Pennsylvania or wherever, you are not the driving force that elects a, a presidential candidate anyway. So when they lose, 
What do they say? Ooh, we got to go find out what went wrong with the working class white voters. Did they ask about the people of Chicago when they lost? No. The entire year after Hillary Clinton lost, they dedicated to focusing on and trying to figure out how to better please the fickle portion of the electorate, the ones who can, who could figure out some sort of gym, mental gymnastics that may let them vote for Barack Obama in one election and Donald Trump in the next rather than the people who had shown unwavering devotion to them. That should tell you all you need to know about how much power you actually have among that group of politicians. Now, you deliver a state, which Black people have never done until Georgia did. Now you're talking power. Because now they're trying to figure out how do we keep this majority of the coalition rather than excite the 15, 10% when the white people basically split down the middle. I mean, but we are only 15%, barely 15% of the United States in the first place. We don't care about that. Because when I just told you that there are seven states right now with 90 plus percent white population who have no commitment whatsoever, no obligation to further your interests. If you combine the population of all seven of those states and they control 14 sentences today, black people are four times the population of all those states combined. If you're only 13% of the population, they're only three. Yeah. And they control 14 sentences. You got to be strategic about where yeah. you're going to aim your power and where you can get it. No, you're making like, like Charles, you, like, you pretty much have like a believer out of me, even though like I don't want to move from New York right now. <laughs> But I wouldn't put it past me moving to the South after I retire. Like, because one, my money will go way longer there. Right. And two, like, I like the South. I enjoyed visiting it as a child. I'm a big fan of It is a beautiful place. Yeah, it's gorgeous. I don't want to ever drive a car again, which is the conundrum that I have going on. I, I, I I have made it a year without a car, and I'm realizing I just, oh my God, I can't do it. I can't do it. So I, but I, okay, for all of my, your gr- green followers, I am only looking at electric cars. <laughs> there will be no, I'm going to keep my footprint as low as possible and also use. So I don't know. If, I think there's some, something they say about use versus new. I don't know. But I'm just trying to like keep my footprint small, but I think I'm going to have to have some wheels. No, it's, it's, I am from the rest of America and I tell people in New York all the time, like, you need to have a car. You can't survive. <laughs> I don't know how I'm doing it in Chicago that I'm doing it without a car. I think it's because literally everything I need is within like a mile. You'll radius. never make it. The public transportation is designed terribly for a I, reason. They want I, you to right. buy a car. I, like, I moved into the one area of Chicago that's like Brooklyn. So. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> but Charles, this was delightful. This was inspiring. This was like challenging. I feel like I feel like you made me a believer. Like I'm, well, I'm down. Let's so. do this. Let's or, make or least, revolution you know, time. You know, the, the, the publisher of 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 the Chicago Defender is a huge. He, he's a prototype for me because what he was doing was challenging people to think, challenging exactly. people to consider. Not everyone who read the Chicago Defender in Mississippi moved. That's true. But but many of them saw it and were inspired by it and said, "Why not?" Exactly. And they did move. And And so I hope that we start that conversation. 
Yeah. And maybe it doesn't happen now, but maybe you do get a bunch of us who are like, well, heck, I'm retiring anyway. Maybe we all go yes. down there. Yes. Exactly. You know, let's do it. Let's yes. not get ageist and say it only has to be young people who change everything, you know. Exactly. exactly. Well, I, I, <laughs> we the ones that vote anyway. Everyone over 40, 50, 60, we're the ones that are actually out. voting. <laughs> so, on a train. We can truly flip a state. But okay, we can talk about this forever. Charles, thank you so much for joining thank us. Thank you so much. I really appreciate it. Thank you guys for having me. <laughs> yes, it was amazing having you on this list. And you have to come back. Thank you. The Root Presents It's Lit is produced by myself, Maisha Kai, and Michaela Heck. Our sound engineer is Ryan Allen. If you like the show and want to help us out, please give us a rating on Apple Podcasts. It really helps other people find the show. If you have any thoughts or feedback, you can find me on Twitter at Black Snob or on Instagram at Belton Danielle. And you can find me at Maisha on Twitter. That's M-A-I-Y-S-H-A and at Maisha Kai on Instagram. And before we go, we always have to talk a bit about what we're currently reading. Maisha, what are you getting into these days? You know, I would like to say I am more looking and perusing than actually (laughs) reading. I'm kind of like dabbling here. I'm dabbling there. You know, lately I've been really into Black Bottom Saints by Alice Randall. Uh, This is one of those books that, you know, it's not a long book, but it's a ton of stories told about these incredible people in Detroit that made up this black bottom culture in in Detroit. And, you know, I live right across the pond from Detroit and Chicago. So I've always had some curiosity about how they do it over there in their history, because I know so much about our city's history. And this book is fascinating to me (laughs) and so many well-known names. So I've just been kind of, you know, coming back to it now and again. I love that it's like told in these little vignettes because like you don't have to like dive in and read the whole thing from start to finish. But what are you reading? You know, I'm currently reading Ida B. The Queen by mm. Michelle Duster. We'll talk about Chicago right there. Yeah. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> but Ida B. Wells, an icon of journalism, of Black journalism. I mean, she's activism. our foremother, isn't she? Yes. she's She, she begat this. She begat <laughs> all right. of this. That's right. And so I, of course, as a Black history nerd, I'm excited to dive into this slightly more youth-oriented book about... Ida's legacy. Well, I'm glad the youth are learning about her. because They need to. Yeah, they need to. They need to understand that. Absolutely. Absolutely. (laughs) And that's (laughs) it for us this week. Thanks so much for listening and we'll see you next week. And until then, keep it lit.